0: You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever, be free Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P Stand for free the Black Panthers And up the black police Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, finna build here Up coin sale pro, show It's gon' be televised Black power, be scared guys They be standing there like they paralyzed huh? We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth to crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost their freedom Until they freedom We screamin' carpe demon." we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me, i mad. Free the Black Panthers, FVBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, It's fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay. Free the Black Panthers, FVBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, It's fuck the Black Police. The infiltrated our movements, for black leadership roles But we still here, finna build here, up coin tail broke RBG RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. My sisters, my brothers, counselor, the of the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish stuff, don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. rock up, another conversation. Trump finna to get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the
1: new Black Panther Party,
0: our
2: own nation. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm David Blight. I'm the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. Welcome to this uh, extraordinary panel on the question of reparations in global perspective. Um, This is sponsored by the Gilda Lehrman Center. Uh, It is our event. It also derives in part from uh, a study of slavery uh, that we are conducting here at Yale and it is being conducted by uh, the GLC, its staff and a large working group of faculty Uh, student research assistants, librarians, community members, and others. Um, But tonight, uh, with this panel, we're going to address this question. uh, Where does the idea of reparations come from? And uh, where is the world now with this kind of question? I want to first name some co-sponsors of this event and then get right to the question at hand. Our co-sponsors are the Afro-American Cultural Center on campus, the Amistad Committee of New Haven, the National Assembly of American Slave Descendants, the Yale Alumni Nonprofit Alliance, the, Black, the Yale Black Alumni Association, the Yale Latino Alumni Network, and Christopher Fields from the School of Psychiatry here at Yale. And I wanna give a special thank you to Cheryl Carter, a Yale alum, class of 82, and Ken Inadomi, uh, Yale class of 1976, who were instrumental in helping us plan this panel, indeed in helping us achieve uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, and Tom Steyer as guests tonight on this panel. Um, In the past half century, a dozen or more countries as well as international organizations of various kinds, companies, universities, and other kinds of entities, have considered or enacted programs of repair for past wrongs, for torture, for disappearance, for murder by the state, uh, for regimes of discrimination, and for slavery in the Americas. Sometimes redress is through juridical means. Sometimes it's through material or financial payments uh, to identified victims. And sometimes repair comes in symbolic approaches, such as apologies or memorialization of various types aimed at healing or at education. Sometimes it is living victims and families who get restitution. And sometimes for past wrongs, sometimes this comes for past wrongs carried out over centuries, over 20, 30, 40, and more generations of people. Justice over time has widely differing meanings, of course, across different cultures and across time. This panel will address these questions historically and in our contemporary world. And as is sometimes my habit, I'm gonna launch us with a little Frederick Douglass quote, uh, if if I can have your indulgence. It comes actually ironically in Douglass's famous self-made man speech which he gave dozens and dozens and dozens of times after the Civil War. He is celebrating, in this section of the speech, he's celebrating individualism. He's celebrating um, what he calls individual independence. He's honoring the power of the individual, but he says individuals are really only like waves on the sea. We are really dependent on the ocean, he says. And we are just waves, each of us, and even rejects the idea of genius. But then he says, quote, should the American people put a schoolhouse in every valley of the South and a church on every hillside and supply the one with teachers and the other with preachers for a hundred years to come, they would not then have given fair play to the negro the nearest approach to Doug, uh, the nearest approach to justice douglas went on to the negro for the past is to do him justice in the present now douglas used that line from the 18 late 1860s on through the 1870s 1880s and probably even in the early 1890s this was the post Reconstruction era. Uh, Many scholars have pointed to that passage as Douglass's embrace of reparations. Well, there wasn't really a reparations regime yet of, of any sort for him to necessarily identify. But Reconstruction itself, as we'll discuss in a moment, can certainly be seen as an attempt at repair. Let me introduce our guests as quickly as I can to such a distinguished group, and then we will dive right in. I am going to have uh, Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee go last as our initial speakers, because uh, as expected, (laughs) uh, a problem came up and she just asked to be uh, last speaker. That's actually the way I planned it anyway, but let me introduce her. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Uh, is the congressperson from the 18th Congressional District of Texas, which is the Houston, Texas area. She's in her 13th term. She's on at least three important congressional committees, the Judiciary Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, and the Budget Committee. Uh, Important in part to this panel, she's a Yale graduate, uh, her BA here in political science. She was in the first graduating class of women from Yale. Uh, She did her uh, law degree at the University of Virginia. Her husband, Dr. Elwin Lee, also is a Yale graduate. She's been at the center of major legislation about many, many issues. I can't go into each of the bills she has authored or sponsored, but she's been involved in the Violence Against Women Act, uh, bullying prevention and juvenile justice, immigration reform, federal prison nonviolent offenders, the Federal Prison Nonviolent Offender Relief Act, Transportation Security, HR1, which is pending now, of course, the the New Voting Rights Act. Uh, She's past chair of numerous subcommittees in the Congressional Black Caucus, and she is a major sponsor and spokesperson of HR40, which is the reparations bill that has been in Congress for many, many years, and I think just recently was voted out of committee. And she also graciously sat at my table when I gave a, a interview lecture at the Library of Congress a year and a half ago, and went out of her way to come and talk to me. And I will never forget it, Congresswoman. Um, it was uh, one of the thrills of that evening for me. Leslie Harris is an old friend of mine, a historian of great merit. Uh, She did her B.A. at Columbia and her Ph.D. at Stanford. She currently teaches early American and African-American history at Northwestern University. She formerly taught at Emory University for some years. Her books include In the Shadow of Slavery, which is the history of New York through the whole colonial period all the way up to 1813. Uh, Second book, Slavery and Freedom in Savannah, which she did with her comrade, Uh, Dinah Berry, which is a a history of Savannah that they did with the Telfair Museum in Savannah. And she's also co-editor with James Campbell and Al Brophy of Slavery and the University, which is a collection of essays that came out of this organization called University Studying Slavery, which Leslie helped found and create. She also was co-founder while she taught all those years at Emory, of an organization called Transforming The Transforming Community Project in the neighborhood and the whole community around Emory, which she ran from 2004 to 2011. Uh, Leslie, welcome back to the GLC to yet another panel, I'm really grateful you could do this.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
2: Uh, Pablo de Grief um, is Senior Fellow and Director of Transitional Justice Uh, at the the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice School of Law at New York University. He was formerly the Director of Research at the International Center for Transitional Justice from 2001 to 2014 in New York. Um, He uh, was appointed in 2012 the first ever United Nations Special Rapporteur on promotion of truth, justice, and reparation. He held that position until 2018. He was born in Colombia. He did his BA here at Yale. His PhD at Northwestern taught philosophy at SUNY Buffalo for a while uh, before moving to New York and getting to the heart of this whole world of reparation. Pablo de Grief's work is at the center of this entire story of how nations and peoples in transition have attempted and then sometimes succeeded at engaging in repair regimes for past wrongs he is the uh editor of (laughs) i gotta hold it up it's called the oxford handbook on reparations now a handbook that is well over a thousand pages is a very odd name for that book pablo but it's, it's a Bible of, of reparations and how it's happened in at least a dozen countries around the world, the perils and the successes of reparation regimes. And Pablo, no, no panel on reparations would be quite right without you. So Pablo, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you, David. It's an honor for me to be here with you and uh, the other panelists. So thank you Thank very you. Much.
2: And last but not least, um, Tom Steyer, uh, graduate of Yale University in 1979. He is founder of the Next Gen American Voter Mobilization Effort. Uh, he was co-chair of Governor, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom's 2020, he is co-chair, 2020 Business and Jobs Recovery Task Force. In 2020, as everyone will remember, he was a presidential candidate. He's co-chair of he was co-chair of Vice President Biden's Climate Engagement Advisory Council. Uh, he's been a major voice on many issues like corporate tax reform. He fights for all kinds of progressive causes, including public schools. And I really want to honor that, Tom. He told me to call him Tom, by the way, um, as a product of public schools. Uh, he, no one can forget all of his ads about the impeachment of Donald Trump long before Anybody thought it would happen? And then it happened twice? And he's involved in all sorts of issues and causes around racial justice, including this one. Um, I'd like to actually begin this discussion, Pablo, uh, with you, if I may. Uh, Just to to lay the groundwork here a little, uh, I'd like you to reflect with us for a few minutes on... This human rights tradition that came out of the Second World War, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and all the other human rights efforts, and I know human rights in some scholarship predates the Second World War, others argue it doesn't, I don't want to get into that. But in that human rights environment and tradition came these various attempts in countries all over the globe to initiate repair for dictatorships, for regimes that conducted torture, disappearance, murder, and even genocide, uh, beginning one might say with the German reparations to Israel and world Jewry, which is extraordinary in, in its mm-hmm. scale and size, and I guess still the biggest ever attempted. Uh, would you give us a sense of how that came about and how we now live in that world of repair? when anybody attempts to do this?
4: So, David, there is, of course, a very long history of uh, post-conflict interstate reparations, an example of which, of course, is the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War. Right. But that tradition is not the one that is pertinent to our discussion. The tradition that is pertinent today is the tradition of... Intra, of int, intrastate, massive administrative reparation programs for individuals, not an exchange between governments, between states, but rather programs that provide benefits for victims, for individual victims. One can say that a precursor of the modern reparation uh, program that we are talking about here lies in one part of the German uh, post-Holocaust uh, reparations. That arrangement was uh, formalized in the Luxembourg Agreement in 1952, and they had. Uh, Two components, one a uh, component of the typical and historical interstate reparations. So the government of uh, the, the Federal Republic giving to the newly established uh, government of Israel, what today would be the equivalent of $7 billion, which constituted a significant part uh, of uh, the budget of the newly established state. But it also included a second part, which is fundamental, which was the provision of about, what today would amount to about a billion dollars to be given to the claims conference, which was, as we would call it today, a network of NGOs, of civil society associations, that committed itself to distributing benefits to individual victims. Since then, you jump, for example, to the Latin American countries of the Southern Cone in the 80s and 90s, which in their effort to redress the injustices and the violations that took place during their dictatorial experiences, Mm -hmm. established established comprehensive programs Mm -hmm. that included a criminal justice dimension, a truth-telling dimension, and a reparations dimension. And it is really there that we should seek the roots and the lessons of the contemporary reparation experience from which I think one can derive certain lessons to the contemporary discussion in the US. What are one or two of those most
2: important lessons of Chile Uh, Argentina, Brazil, and other countries in Latin America, or for that matter, even South Africa, which established these panels, regimes, judicial or otherwise, of repair?
4: So I think that there are three fundamental lessons uh, that we have uh, learned. One of them is that (laughs) the criterion of success in reparations at the massive level is very different from the criterion of success when a court is adjudicating a tort case, an isolated tort case.
5: Yeah.
4: A court uses the principle of full restitution, making victims whole. That is not the principle of success. That's one that of person person's
2: That's when a person sues in court for damages at some level determined. But what you're talking about now is something done by the state. That's much more massive.
4: That's right on a massive scale dealing with the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of victims at the same time and not analyzing claim by claim individually, but rather in whole categories and there the criterion of success is a bit more complex. The second lesson, and I will come back to the question about the complexity of success in this area. The second lesson is that there is very good evidence that programs are more satisfactory to victims when they are not conceived of purely as compensatory mechanisms, Uh as a mechanism to distribute cash and to turn the page, close the book, and achieve a very quick closure. Uh Programs succeed much more and turn out to be much more satisfactory when they distribute a wide variety of benefits.
5: Uh So to
4: give you an example, and there was a sort of natural experiment with this, Morocco established once an arbitration tribunal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to provide the compensation to victims, but it had a purely compensatory function and nothing else. Mm. Despite the fact that it distributed fairly high sums by Moroccan standards, people were generally dissatisfied with that experience. A few years later, in connection with the Truth Commission, a reparations program was established. And that linkage between truth and reparations Mm. was absolutely fundamental to the success of that experience. Mm. And I think that that's a point that can be generalized and that gets Mm. me to the point about what it means to create a successful reparation program. Mm -hmm. That means not create a standalone program that acts uh, as a mechanism of distribution, but rather something that involves an acknowledgement of truth of what Uh happened in the past. An effort to redress uh, that history through several means, including in the case of historical justice, criminal justice is not relevant, but certainly civil law is relevant. And there may be interesting avenues to pursue at the civil level, for example, with respect to corporations that are certainly relevant in the case of historical injustices. But it includes, very importantly, a connection with the socialization of truth, a socialization of a history which in this country includes not just slavery, but also Jim Crow. And it includes state-sponsored forms of discrimination Mm -hmm. and segregation that lasted well beyond the the Mm -hmm. civil rights movements of the 60s. And in my opinion, Uh, any discussion about reparations should not only include those three elements, Uh, it should also include a big effort to make sure that the discussion isn't simply about the price tag and how to get over this hump as rapidly as possible. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, if this discussion (laughs)
2: never gets past
4: a dollar figure or something,
2: (laughs) we never get there. I find your phrase, the socialization of truth, interesting, especially in the wake of the Trump years (laughs) when truth was essentially rendered irrelevant. so, uh, but by that you mean, pop- do you mean Pablo, a concerted
5: a national effort not,
2: to tell a better history, to oh, make a better history more widely available, to to, to take I'm like national proactive efforts you know, to brought a better
4: history. Is that what you mean by the socialization of truth? Exactly what I mean. And the history of the sort of reparations that we are talking about tonight, David, is one that is inevitably tied to the history of truth-telling efforts. Uh Most contemporary reparation programs are the outcome of the work of truth commissions. And that connection between truth Hmm. and reparation is absolutely essential in order to distinguish reparations from, for example, a crime insurance program. A crime insurance program pays back for harms that the title owners suffer. This is not what reparations is about. Reparations is not simply about getting paid back or harms that you have suffered. Reparations involves acknowledging that something unacceptable took place, committing yourself to addressing people on the basis of rights uh, that they have, and uh, consequently trying to achieve uh, cultural changes that prevent the likelihood, that diminish the likelihood that these things will take place again.
5: Uh So this is not simply
4: about an exchange of money. It is about uh, the transformation of institutions that enabled the events to take place, the culture that uh, uh, got used and normalized uh, the idea that this was uh, acceptable, and the individual dispositions that accompanied both the institutional network and the cultural convictions. Unless that is changed, we are talking simply about an economic transaction. Right. Yeah. And and if reparations
2: remains only transactional exclusively...
5: it uh, often doesn't work. I want I want you to
2: weigh in later, Pablo, too, when I bring up the question of the politics of reparations.
5: Because your book has a great deal in it. I find
2: it's one of the most important things about your book that it shows how the politics in each of these countries had to be traversed, had to be navigated, and in some cases it, it didn't work because of that. But in some cases it did. But Leslie, let, let's talk a little bit here. I know some of our audience knows a good deal of this history but some of it may not. Emancipation obviously comes out of the American Civil War. Help us understand what reconstruction, I know we're generalizing here, but reconstruction, that 10 or 12 year period, was an effort by these, these radical Republicans who designed it. To repair the past in in so many ways, they realized they were responsible for four million freed slaves,
5: and you
2: know, and defining who they were and what their rights would be, and on and on and on. So, to what extent was Reconstruction an era of the repair? Is- Within, I was
5: thinking that you, guys, you
3: know, bliss. Well, yeah, I think picking up on where Pablo left off, I was particularly struck by I'm going to say that rep- I, reparations is not only about a payout but also no. repair of society. And reconstruction, of Come course, on. was the reconstruction of the, the very foundation of the nation. It's Many talk about the, uh, looking backward, talking about the unfinished business that was left from the no, Revolutionary no, Era. So if we look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th no, Amendment, is it which were really an attempt to realign the country with this idea of all men are created equal men, women, humans. Um, this idea that slavery is not really a part of the founding ideals. Of so right. I, I, when I think about reparations, I'm very much uh, struck by what Pablo described place. as. It's simply not only the repair of the four million. And unfortunately, Bleeding I think when we think seeds, right? of it that way, and I think many people at the time thought it was about the repair of the four million, that became a way to say that those people were not ready for citizenship. Yep. And that was not the case. So if we think about repair as a broader societal imperative in that those years after the civil war then I think we have a broader understanding of what would have been necessary for the newly emancipated to really not just survive, but thrive in what was really going to be a new nation. The end of slavery with the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment redefining citizenship, and then the 15th Amendment, of course, suffrage. Those were designed already that black people then would be on the same level as everyone else. we often think when we, we think, think about reparations, 48 is be the one right. place where if we have this more truncated understanding of reparations and repair. Ironically,
2: from, uh, from William Tecumseh Sherman, of all people. Of all
3: people. Um, <laughs> and so there was that moment. But, you know, Reconstruction was so much more than that for so many people. It was a moment when African Americans began to build their own churches and schools, their own institutions, but also they began to link their future for the first time into the state of the nation. Yeah. This is still, I think, the moment when we have the most black elected officials ever, from every level of society, sheriffs, local people in urban areas. And I, I still think about that time period <laughs> where um, the majority of whom were recently released from slavery and yet voted, occupied political office, knew what was at stake for them. And so um, uh, there was a need for repair, but I sometimes have to ask the question, who needed to learn something new at this time? Not just the emancipated, but the people who had held power for so long and have seen their own citizenship linked to slavery and to creating wealth from enslaved people, those were the people who needed to be repaired. Those are the people who needed to reckon with the new nation. Unfortunately, as we know, um, the time of reconstruction, of their reconstruction was far too short and we see a massive backlash afterwards. And I think we've been in that cycle of progress and backlash in terms of the place of African-Americans and we could extend this to other non-whites in this country for a very long
2: time. Yeah, I mean reconstruction is as much defeated as it was just you know, betrayed or falling apart. I mean it's both, but it truly was defeated by the political movement of the Southern Democrats of white supremacy of the use of terror. And then we have you know we make we make too easy a link from just the end of Reconstruction all the way to the end of Jim Crow. There's a lot of history in between and a lot of creativity and development of black institutions and, and efforts at race relations that succeeded here and succeeded there. And yet in the wake of world war II, again, and I, I don't want to leave off all that history. I really don't. In the wake of world war II, this massive American and allied effort to fight racism around the world comes a civil rights movement, uh, you know, not overnight, by any means. And it has, it has many origins in the war and before. But out of that comes this second reconstruction, as Ben Woodward called it, and many others have called it.
5: And the realization
2: that through law, this society could be reinvented again. And it was.
3: Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, that second reconstruction... Is, uh, it comes out of a lot of places. One of the places it comes out of is international pressure. The yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, US's understanding of its new uh, uh, role as a global example. Uh, frankly, uh, pushing against the communist example, and when we think of the field of education, I think it's critical to understand that the expansion of access to education, moving from single-digit percentages of the population before World War II, to a much broader understanding of who should have access to higher education afterwards, comes out of Uh, government leadership and foundation leadership understanding their belief that in order to... public
2: schools and public (laughs) universities. Yes,
3: and and, and their belief that in order to fight communism, they had to show that they were as good, if not better. Where communism had, with all its problems, had said everyone should have an education, the U.S. sort of had to catch up. And so there's this massive um, creation of access
0: to um, higher education, along with, of course, struggling for the Voting Rights Act, struggling
3: for uh, desegregation, um, of course, uh, ending uh, legal segregation in the South, but we had, I just spoke with a friend who uh, bought a house in California and still had the covenant of whites only um, in the East. Um So just to be clear. This- this yes recently, 2 yes, today, because in order to get that language removed from the deed in certain subdivisions, you have to actually get everyone in the subdivision to agree. So it's not enforceable, but she was very shocked as a non-white person to open up her documents and see that covenant for that That's happening, if you think about all the suburbs that are built, that's happening at the same time that we're trying to undo segregation. Some places are still stitching it into the fabric. So this also gets to something that uh, Pablo said, which is that this issue is not just about slavery. Yeah. It is also about the long Jim Crow era, I would almost call it in the twentieth century. Right. We have a long civil rights movement that starts you can you know, easy place to, to date it is from the founding of the NAACP, but of course you could start it earlier than that. Oh, yeah. That continues through the twentieth. There's also the long Jim Crow era and the struggle. So we think of nineteen fifty four, desegregation uh, of schools, but we know that Virginia closed the schools down rather than desegregate. We have people who are still litigating Brown, 1954, by the early in the 1970s. So there are a number of ways in which there's a need for truth-telling and repair in order to understand um, the ways in which um, African Americans uh, were held back in this country. Can
2: you say a word about how you were involved in the creation of this Organization called Universities Studying Slavery. You helped to found it. You edited the book from it. Now it's an organization of, I forget how many, dozens and dozens of universities. Yale just joined this past year who are all in one way or another studying their own past. And they all have different stories. I mean, nobody has the same story. In the South, it's,
4: it's,
2: a, it's a deep problem. Uh, up here, it's a deep problem too. It just isn't as visible.
4: So
3: first
2: of
3: all, I, that organization. So I wasn't a founder of University Studying Slavery, and I want to give a shout out to one of your co-sponsors, the Amistad, um, oh, yeah. that uh, is part of my prehistory in being involved with this idea of studying slavery at university, <laughs> because they called on like Yale in the late 90s to reckon um, with the history of it's Yale's history of, with slavery, and not just this history with abolition, which is the way that many northern institutions um, Went the, the University Studying Slavery Organization is actually founded at UVA, and it's part of no. what I would see as a second generation of universities studying slavery. And they have done what I think was necessary. When I began my work at Emory around issues of slavery and race, really, broadly speaking, at the institution, many of us were in individual schools struggling yeah. with... What do we know of this school, of its commitment to race? What is its history of commitment? And my own involvement came out of a series of racial incidents and working with colleagues and students to really think about how can we make Emory a place where we not, in today's language, an actual anti-racism, anti-racist institution. And so the Transforming Community Project was not only about recovering the history, but doing one of the things that Pablo said, how do we get this history into the hands of other people? How do we get people to think about and work with the history, read about it, watch films about it, understand how some of the big national histories around race also impact at the very local campus level. We invited faculty, staff, students, and alums to participate in semester-long meetings to discuss the history, and then at the end of that semester to think about how am I changed by knowing this history? What do I want to do to create change in my workplace, in my dormitory, in the classroom, you name it? So that was very exciting repair work, if I might say. Um, a lot of people felt greater ownership of the history without feeling they felt constructive about it, without feeling overwhelmed or, you know and, and we were very clear, this is only a beginning. But for to give people an assistance in thinking about how can I as an individual do this work. Now, university studying slavery and where Yale comes in now with this work, I think, is in this important I think we are realizing that the ways that universities have done this work, which is what we do, education, example, changing names on buildings, et cetera, et cetera, that is all well and good, but in terms of really thinking about repair, in terms of thinking about access, in terms of thinking about what we need as a community of higher education across campuses, but also what the nation needs. I think that's really the pressing question for all of us, and so how do we begin to answer that question? I think that is needed through groups of higher education institutions coming together. Mm -hmm. recognizing the inequities. A Yale is very different from an Emory, which is very different from a state school or a community. And those differences can be good, but they can also be inequities that mean that people do not actually have access to inequities. And so I think that Our higher education system, one of its strengths has been that incredible diversity of access. What HBCUs do to train, they are still the source of the largest number of black PhDs and uh, higher education degrees. Um, Without HBCUs, in a sense, uh, the diversity at the post-baccalaureate level in many of our elite institutions wouldn't exist in terms of African-Americans. So what is our responsibility as a network of higher education to reinforcing that access and also expanding it? We are in a moment in America where we are living with the reality that we need more education, not less. The year of the pandemic, the year of political lies has taught us that we need more higher education. And I can also point to the Obama administration's report before they left office saying that we would actually be behind in the production of college degrees just for the things that our economy needs, much less what we need in terms of our politics and society. So I think we're at a moment where these universities that are studying slavery really need to come together, and they began with this awareness that this is not just about slavery, It's not about looking to the past, but it's how do yeah. our institutions look to the future. So I'll stop my lecture there. Well, that's okay. I no. that that's
2: you <laughs> I could talk about this all night. I'll well, just mention quickly, one of the many programs we're doing here at the Gilbert Lehrman Center is a is program with the uh, Council of Independent Colleges, which is a national network of over 600 small liberal arts colleges. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of these in the United States. And we had 50 applicants. We boiled it down to only seven, two of which are HBCUs. And each of them had to choose a legacy of slavery. I wrote up this whole document. I named ten legacies of slavery. There aren't eleven, you know. There are only ten. And and uh, they all had to choose one. And on their own campuses, these small colleges are digging deep into this question, and in their communities. So there are lots of small colleges, especially in the south, that have problems with it. And they're working. We're working on that too. Anyway, but Tom Steyer. Um, You've been spending a lot of your time recently in the political world, uh, but you gave up a, a very successful business uh, to to enter all these causes.
5: Now, this question of
2: repair for the past, for that matter, any question of social justice now, has a politics,
5: uh, and that politics can, as you well know,
2: can be mean and incredibly divisive. I want to hear your thoughts on this whole idea of reparations, but I especially would love to hear you on this, this. The nub of the problem. How will we ever get this done? How will we ever cross this horrible political divide we have in this country, even about some fairly basic things, much less this idea of repair for slavery? How do we navigate the politics of this?
4: Well, let me
5: start, David,
6: by thanking you and thanking the Yale Alumni Nonprofit Alliance, and all the co-sponsors uh, for putting on this panel. It is
5: an honor to be up here with
6: such outstanding people and scholars. And of course, I love Representative Jackson Lee, my fellow Yale who I have worked with and who I have incredible respect for as a civil rights leader on this issue of reparations, but more broadly across the country. It's really really fantastic, and I really look forward, I think as Professor Harris suggested, to Yale
5: taking a leadership role,
6: really emphasizing the need for racial justice and reparations in our society. I think it's completely appropriate, and I applaud what you're doing and what everybody's doing. Um, And let me say, I think it's absolutely necessary to point out that if you weren't paying attention to racial injustice before this summer, it was impossible to ignore after the murder of George Floyd.
5: And this is, as
6: Professor Harris said, a specific moment in time where I think we're at a turning point. And I also think it's important to note that the language in the white press around the uprisings in American history. All of them in response to white-on-black violence or police brutality have consistently used the word riot, not uprising, to describe them, implicitly condemning the reaction and the resistance to systemic racism.
5: And I want to say, as a white person, as a
6: white man, it's important for me to acknowledge and state the deep, broad American need for racial justice
5: and to note the racism that is so deep in all our
6: systems. I understand that the onus for dismantling white supremacy falls on white
5: people
6: and that this is, as has been stated earlier this evening, an issue really to repair society at large people of all races are, are people who need to be repaired in this instance and you know i first confronted this politically through my work on climate
5: mm-hmm.
6: which has always been immediately immutably irrever- irrevocably connected to environmental justice mm-hmm to the need to address the systematic and pervasive concentration of toxins in underserved black and brown communities of America. You cannot separate climate activism from racial justice.
5: You can't overestimate its importance in terms of policy or in terms of politics. And in particular, one of the
6: things that happened to me and traveling around the country over the last decade plus is meeting people from those communities whose lives have been affected or shattered
4: really by that systematic concentration of pollution. And so for instance, there's a guy who I don't know if the people on this
5: Zoom uh, call will named Harold Mitchell, who's one, uh, who's a friend.
6: Who's, who's someone who's from Orangeburg, South Carolina, grew up next to a chemical plant, poisoned his family, his parents died while he and his siblings got very sick. And he created something called the Regenesis Project, which is a project built around clean energy, health, and job creation, which is one of the most amazing examples of environmental justice and entrepreneurship that you can imagine. So it's not just a tale of concentrated injustice. It's also a story about people reacting brilliantly and impactfully to represent their families and their communities to redress it. And let me say, I had already witnessed in my career in the private sector, the pervasive economic racism built into the fabric of our economic system from long before I started doing my political work. 15 years ago, Kat Taylor and I started a nonprofit bank to serve the cause of economic justice and environmental sustainability.
5: We've gone into some of the same
6: underserved black and brown communities to support businesses owned and operated by women and people of color to prove it's possible and profitable because the existing banks wouldn't do it And that's over. It went from zero to over a billion two in those fifteen years. We measure every loan
5: for the impact on the
6: community. We had to come up with the metrics. Banks don't do that. They measure the profit they make or the loss they make. We measure the impact in terms of what happens: of job creation, income housing, all the things that benefits. And
5: And could
6: that that be converted to the federal level, Tom? Excuse me. Could that be absolutely? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen. I truly believe that our economic system has got to measure something besides money. And that's Mm -hmm. what I really want to talk about.
5: That's why I pushed
6: for reparations when I ran for president. Mm -hmm. Because my work showed systematic racism, shoved it in my face, even as a white person.
5: And it exists,
6: in, in its case, in my opinion, in all these unjust systems. There is racism and there is money at the root of it, and that the money aspect of this has got to be called out. I mean, racism and money, redlining, refusing to lend money in black and brown communities. Racism and money. No national health system in the United States. Only country, only developed country with our, anything like our kind of income. No national health system. Racism and money. Yeah, universal
2: health care would be a nice repair.
6: (laughs) Reparations,
2: as both of the scholars have said, this is
5: a broader
6: thing than just money. This is a, a reparation of spirit and wholeness and values as well as money. But I want no OSHA protection for farm workers. You could literally spray them with chemicals, literally without any cost. That's racism and money. The way we built our neighborhoods, how the streets go, where the public transportation goes, to cut off neighborhoods from other neighborhoods, racism and money, public housing. That's why I talked about reparations to all white audiences in Iowa and New Hampshire, because everyone needs to confront this. Not just our past, it's built into the systems that exist Today, that's what I'm trying to say. That's why I'm so proud to support Representative Jackson Lee as she continues the work that started 31 years ago with Representative John Conyers and finally passes H.R. 40. The basic point for white audiences is fairness going forward isn't fair
5: history happens it
6: can't be forgotten it can't be ignored and it's really important to call out acknowledge and repair unspeakable and look i've participated in the public sector and the private sector this is an inflection point in federal policy and in public attitudes and i know that professor harris said we've it's been a a wave, you know, that we, it's ebbed and flowed, but this has to be a time when actually we really push forward. I mean, if you look at the Biden infrastructure plan. Yeah, I
2: was just going to ask you about that. Go for it. Look,
6: <laughs> it deals with environmental justice, racial justice in so many ways, addressing the right to clean water, replacing lead pipes. I mean, Flint, Michigan. I grew up in Flint, Flint, Tom. I grew up in Flint. I've been to, oh, my God. That was a criminal situation. I know. The right to clean air, getting rid of diesel trucks that go right through, you know, poor neighborhoods where the kids have asthma, 3.3 3 million people in California. It's definitely economically and racially driven. The right to a decent job. This plan concentrates 40% of the job creation from this huge infrastructure bill in the same underserved black and brown communities where the pollution has been concentrated for time and time. And, you know, one of the things that I fell in love with, HBCUs, a lot, I mean, when I was running for president, I was talking all the time about multiples of the money to HBCUs. They work. They have worked. They actually produce, as Professor Harris said, leading numbers to black people in so many places, not just in terms of PhD. So they're addressing the money in this, but the American people want them to address, I firmly believe, the racism as well, to call it out, to shame it, to address it. And this is the time. You know, I think for all of us, regardless of your race, this is the time for repair. I'm extremely Honored as I started by saying to be here with you all, and to address something that I consider to be at the very heart of creating the America that we claim to be and want to be and say we are. And so I'm excited to participate in this and to participate in the question and answer part of this too.
2: Well, Tom, thank you. You're 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 a, you're an inspiration. I mean, you really are. Uh, you you know what you, you know what you're talking about for You know in a Previous meeting I had with this just a preparation meeting, one of your assistants said that you especially were out there on the campaign trail talking about this question to white audiences, and you got their attention. Because, you yeah, know, most white people, reparations, I don't know what goes through their head, checks, checks being cut to people who will misuse them or something. I don't know.
5: But, you know,
2: you you caught their attention, apparently, in a lot of places with this this issue so applause <laughs> well you know it's funny because one of the pictures that you had up when we were
6: waiting to start this, yeah. the picture of bishop bishop tutu yeah, yeah. the person who was implicit al- along with Nelson Mandela in setting up the truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa. Right. To the ANC became the majority ruling party. And I always felt that was one of the great triumphs of human generosity and spirituality, that they would go there yeah. and, and basically you know, lead a nationwide spiritual cleansing and a, a desire for people who had clearly transgressed in ways that were Yeah, anus. And forgive them if they would own up to it. I I thought that was one of the most generous and brilliant examples I've seen of the human spirit.
2: Every country needs a Desmond Tutu uh, as a bishop, and every country needs a Nelson Mandela to be president. We should have cloned everybody. Gets them. No, I know, I know. We should have cloned them or something. Uh, Is Representative Jack? There she is. Welcome, Congresswoman Jackson Lee. Welcome back to Yale. (laughs) <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. We're so honored to have you. Uh, I don't know how much of this discussion you heard. I hope you've been able to hear it all, or some parts of it. But we've 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 traversed a good deal of history here, and Tom has, has pushed us into both the politics of this and into the Biden infrastructure bill and its potential. Uh, We'd love to hear your perspective on reparations generally, but especially on H.R. 40, with which I know you are uh, so closely identified. Um,
1: Over to you. Well,
2: uh,
1: Professor, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you to the Gilda Nerman Center as well for that commitment to the study of slavery. Thank you to my alums, uh, to um, Cheryl Carter and uh, Ken uh, Anadomi and the African American Cultural Center. Uh, there's such a long list of individuals, the Amistad, the uh, Yale Latino alumni, and many of the co-sponsors. This is what we need to do, uh, which is we need to be able to join together with one voice. Uh, what a pleasure to, to be here with our professor who has given us a wonderful journey. I thank her for her leadership, Pablo. Um, thank you for giving the international um, perspective because reparations is an international legal concept which is accepted around the world. It is a shocking concept sometimes for Americans, but people around the world understand reparations and you've tied it of course to uh the uh, heinous act of the holocaust and what translated after that and how germany acted but also uh in south america uh, that we have seen uh those efforts so i think uh that is one place that i want to certainly acknowledge uh and then i i want to say to my good friend tom Steyer, we were on the phone with each other this just a few days ago uh, you can imagine uh, uh the uh influence and the uh, giant impact he's had as we've made this journey, uh, which started in 1989 by John Conyers, the late Dean of the United States Congress upon his retirement. Um, He designated me, uh, who had joined him over the years of co-sponsoring, co-sponsoring. And so I've introduced, as a lot of people said associated with it, I am the sponsor, uh, the writer of its current form. Um, and its new rebirth, uh, and as well the determination uh, that indicates that uh, we will pass this, this will become law. I think this is an important point. It's not a concept, it's not a philosophy, uh, it's not an intent, it is a uh, HR, which uh, once it passes, it goes to the death of the president, it becomes a law of the United States of America. And I thank Tom for his honesty in his campaign. And he has probably left in his wake uh, many people around the country that are saying that Tom Steyer was right and he's never wavered. So I have to offer him my deepest gratitude for his friendship and commitment. But let me share with you, and uh, I cannot continue without giving my good buddy, Ralph Dawson. A big shout out, Um, he found me on the floor of the house, he found me in Zoom meetings, uh, and was determined to get here this evening, and with a little bit of humor, I'm delighted that Yale is trying to find us Yaleys that they seem to have had uh, an inability to find, and so, uh, as glaringly as we are, so a little bit of humor, I'm glad to have been found tonight.
5: But let me... uh, We'll keep trying to
1: find you if you let us. I I, am ready to to, when Yale calls because it is certainly a special place in my heart. Um, I'm a member of the Helsinki Commission, which is the Organization for Security and um, Cooperation in Europe. We have met pre-COVID frequently in Europe. And it's easier there for me to discuss slavery, racism, and reparations than it might be in the United States. So we have a long way to go. Mm. Uh, Tom gave a historical perspective, but let me be a little bit redundant, and as I do so, Professor, allow me to do this. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. W.E. Du Bois, wise man that all of us seemingly have had familiarity with his scholarship.
5: A comment Until the killing of black men,
1: black mothers' sons, become as important to the rest of the country as the killing of white mothers' sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. Ella Baker. And one more.
5: One more. Whatever the color
1: of a man's skin, we are all mankind. Let me edit and say womankind, humankind. So every denial of freedom, of equal opportunity for a livelihood or for an education diminishes me. Everett Dirksen, one of my heroes. Each of those commentaries, w Du Bois, Ella Baker, captures reparation. And my last exhibit, this is what we do in Congress, by the way. We ask the chairman, may we submit this into the record? Uh, In the Washington Post, (laughs) opinion-wise, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and all conservatives Gary Abernathy. spoke about one of my colleagues who is a great supporter of reparations. And I'll just say at the end of his statement,
5: he says,
1: in support of reparations, why do we need to do it? Because it is righting the wrong. That's his whole commentary I just gave it to you, his four or five pages editorial. That is where I am in the journey of reparation. That is the difficult hurdle that is necessary for white America and Americans of many different backgrounds. One, we must overcome, for example, I didn't have slaves, my grandmother didn't have slaves. So why should I be concerned about reparation? Well, let me give you a brief journey Uh, so that um, I can fall in tradition of Professor Harris, who gave us a wonderful journey as well. Let me just restate our journey. As a Texan, uh, my ancestors or my neighbors uh, who got to Texas way before me were not freed until 1865. We call that the Emancipation Proclamation. We waited two years. General Granger didn't get there in time in 1863. Uh, so we were enslaved two extra years.
5: Um,
1: historically, I've just passed legislation to establish uh, one of only two uh, national trails relating to black people.
5: One is Selma.
1: And this one now is relating to slavery, the march of black people from Galveston all the way up through Texas. But that is how we have been thought of, the minimum. So here we are being freed in 1865 and miraculous things happened, governors, congresspeople, senators, in that very short period of time. Reconstruction.
5: But understand how
1: that is. Understand how it feels to have reconstruction implode on you flowed in the 1800s and the compromise uh, when it was thought, I better just take care of the South and not worry about these friends. Forget about it. And we went, as W. Boys acknowledged, we were in the sun for a moment, and we started heading back towards slavery. Forgive me for this historical perspective, but I have to do this to penetrate even my colleagues who I'm very grateful that so many are joining as co-sponsors. We expect to have our 200 oh. co-sponsors. We had 180 of people that don't look like me. They don't have my history, don't have my but we were refusing to allow their confusion to not join as a sponsor of HR 40. So we come into the era of Jim Crowism, but we come into the era of lynch. 84% of those lynched were black. 16% were those who were Uh, individuals who favored uh, the uh, uh, providing liberty to black folks no people who have told us
5: auntie, uncle grandma left to go to the grocery store
1: and never came home in some country road in the south that's what the plight of black people were, you cannot ignore the question of race in this issue so I'll jump through the uh, 1900s and oppression uh, and all, and I'll, I'll run quickly to World War II, and I'll tell you about the fighting Tuskegee uh, men, uh, and I'll tell you about uh, the symbolism of blacks in the military, who, by the way, had been in the military from the Revolutionary War and beyond. Uh, and then I'll tell you that they came home on trains, that they had to ride in the back of a train. Truman only integrated the military to World War II, but as you well know, segregation in America was deep was, was in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, my father, Ezra C. Jackson, was a brilliant cartoonist who supported his widow mother because the three of his brothers went to World War II. Uh, he was a Madison, uh, Madison Avenue how um, should I say, aberration when the Young men, white boys came home from the military. Uh, my father was unceremoniously deposed, if you will, dis- deposited away from this industry that he loved. His work is now in the Library of Congress. How proud I am, but how we lived a life that he had to scrape and find and develop ways to support his family. But I have a wonderful story that I can tell about both he and my mother. Moving on from that, let me just say that we move into um, the civil rights era. I've skipped over. We, we know about the four girls uh, in the Birmingham church. We know about the three Mississippi boys, the Viola Luzo. We know about the beating of John Robert Lewis, my dear beloved colleague. People died, shed blood and offered a great sacrifice to get the 1964 civil rights back in 65, we still continue to have a race problem. Richard Nixon did affirmative action. We still continue to have a race problem because it is systemic and we never repaired anything. And so you can travel into cities across America. You can look for that great famous Boulevard, Martin Luther King, and you will find uh, the desperate needs of people who are without resources without health care, without education, uh, without wealth, without status. And that does not miss, and this is the rebuttal I get from my Republican friends and people who want to make mockery of a very serious issue, which is, uh, we've got athletes and entertainers, and I pull myself by the bootstraps and uh, some African-Americans, and uh, we um, are, are doing well in America. Reparations is not about, as Pablo indicated, and uh, in how I speak to my colleagues who speak about a check. I am not dismissing the ultimate results or combined results or um, – the uh, ultimate solutions that may be a combination of solutions of a commission. But it is very clear that reparations is dealing with the global people and global solutions. Uh, quickly, let me just give you Professor Ogletree. Again, this is what members of Congress do when they're hearing. The reparations movement should not focus on payments to individuals. Not focus, does not preclude. Because so This is being recorded, and I want no one who's out there researching and doing their great work uh, to to be uh, dismissed. Uh, I am the big 10. I cannot choose one over the other. Uh, so I open myself up to say that HR 40 is the big 10, and I'll conclude uh, with that point. The damage has been done to a group, but the damage has not been done equally within the group. The movement must therefore focus on the poorest of the poor, must finance social recovery for the bottom stuff providing an opportunity to address comprehensively the problem of those who have not substantially benefited from integration or affirmative action. That's our good friend. He's at another place. was at another school that plays for Harvard, but it's Professor Charles J. Ogletree, a friend to all of us. But in any event, so we come now to the 21st century, uh, and we have passed over the 20th century. I believe that H.R. 40 uh, is the next significant civil rights act the century we had the 64th civil rights act we had the 65 voting rights act that we could calculate the changes in the lives of people that happened but we did not in uh the uh report that the turner commission gave in 1967 there are two americas one black one white now of course we're increasingly diverse and we are understanding of our native american friends our hispanic and latinx friends and many others
5: but it is tragic
1: to say that in 2021, the Kerner Report still prevails as relates uh, to black people in America. And that is racism. And that is the lack of repair. As much as what we did in the 1965 Voting Rights Act and multiplied exponentially the numbers of black elected officials, what were we missing? And the great society that LBJ had. But you can't go and start and stop
5: Mm. or the basis
1: of I got into Yale because it opened it up to women. And I totally tell people that, yes,
5: I got into Yale because
1: of my genius. I'm laughing. I've got a smile on my face. I'm not groaning myself but I got in because they were looking for women. Maybe I was in the right place at the right time. Maybe I did have some uh, intellectual abilities. I don't know. Maybe they're still judging it at this point. But the idea is that I accepted that affirmative reach, and then I did not graduate on that affirmative reach. And so the repair would be such that we would repair uh, and then we would have the opportunity to see the fruits of our labor and the repair would not end, until begin and starts and stop, which is what reconstruction did. Which is what affirmative action did, and so reparations is the standing up. This is a bill of a commission uh, to, uh, with appointments by the government, respond to the government's original sin
5: and the fact
1: that the actions against Black America, slaves, etc., were all governmentally sanctioned. And so, my friends, I have no reason to understand why there is opposition and why people say we had no slaves. We're not speaking to you. The government created the atmosphere of bondage for 250 years, and that is why I hope Yale will look to a commission similar to this, and I hope Yale will be one of my biggest supporters in many of those who they know to advocate for the passage of H.R. Ford. I yield back. (laughs) <laughs> uh,
2: thank you, Congresswoman. May I ask you a question here? And then I have a question for Tom Steyer and a question for everybody on the panel. The questions are piling up here in Q&A. And I must say, many of them are quite political. So You, you, you read that quote from, of all people, Everett Dirksen. <laughs> probably some students on here don't remember who Dirksen was but that's when actually there were a few Republicans who were still the party of Lincoln <laughs> Ever Dirksen I, I mean I, I don't, I'm sure you had a personal history with him too but he supported the 64 Civil Rights Act he helped get it passed and so on but they don't exist anymore so how do you navigate this current Republican Party opposition to many things, much less this reparations bill. How are you going to get it by them?
1: Well, here I go again with a quote, and it'll be very brief. It's Martin oh, that's Luther King. Our, By the way,
2: you can do history here at the DLC anytime you want.
1: Well, Martin Luther King said, uh, uh, you will not turn us around. Uh, we're on the move. Uh, racism will not be our obstruction. Uh, we're on the move. I, I paraphrase his comment. Uh, and the way I expect to do so is uh, just as I did a couple of days ago when I cornered the majority, excuse me, the minority leader of the House uh, and indicated that I'd like to talk to him. And so as we make our way to the floor, as I did with the House leadership, where every single member of the House leadership
5: Uh, is on
1: H.R. 40. Mm -hmm. I will make my way through a few Republicans, which I may receive uh, a note, but I will at least be able to put the case forward that all that they're saying about H.R. 40, the legislation, the the potential law, is not factually based or truthful. Um, We are in the majority, the House and the Senate. And so in addition to my friends on the other side of the aisle, I'm still working with some of our friends that we are uh, colleagues of. I expect to work with them. But I guess what I would say to you that our theme has been, why we can't wait, Uh, the time is now.
5: Uh,
1: In the current atmosphere of America, uh, I would argue that if you're thoughtful about reparations, meaning as this conservative columnist said, righting the wrong, you would understand that Dante Wright's
0: mother needs to
1: see the right Wrong, the wrong right. Um, the Floyd family, my constituents, need to see ongoing uh, George Floyd's uh, death, uh, the wrongness of it righted, and the whole litany of mothers that we have seen, from Trayvon Martin, to Eric Garner's mother, uh, to Sandra Bland and on, and uh, uh, these uh, wrongs need to be righted. This is a time for America to reflect with action. And that action, I think, can be H.R. 40, the Commission of Study Reparations. So it will be my challenge to my own Democratic members. It's your task to get it done in the House and the Senate.
5: And it's your task,
1: President Biden, who steady supports it, to stand up this commission and get us working. When we get working, um, when we give our people an opportunity to come to hearings, No matter what
5: race, color, or
1: background you are, you'll have commission hearings across America. Let us hear you. I think we will be in a better stead. And then we'll write the reparation proposals. I get off by quickly saying uh, the professor's right. One of the thoughts that I have is that a historically black college should never close. They should never have a moment in life to doubt that they can keep their doors open. That is a
5: solution. Uh, by the way,
2: I'd love to be a fly on a wall when you corner Kevin McCarthy. I, ho- I hope you actually can corner him in his office because he's so proud of talking about his portrait of Frederick Douglass up above his. So I suggest it's just a recommendation that you corner him in his office and point to that portrait. You might get his be attention. happy
1: to do it. <laughs> I'm glad that picture's there. I, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well. Yeah, he
2: makes a lot of it. Anyway, uh, Tom, before I know you have to split for an appointment at 830 if we go over a little,
5: but there's a question from
2: Lorraine at Chambers directly for you. And she's a political consultant, so she says she's mesmerized by you. Um, how do you if, if you were explaining reparations to everyday people, how do you explain structural racism to everyday people?
5: Uh, structural racism Well before I answer that question yes. I'd like to make a point about Yale All
6: right This Yale probably thought That they were doing Representative Sheila Jackson Lee A favor when they put her in the first class Of women to graduate from school But in fact I think We can all see from tonight That in fact that was one of the best Things that happened to Yale University so, That the favor went the other way because Yale has a history,
5: a long history of
6: all of the faults we're talking about in terms of systemic racism being built into this school. And we didn't have to rename the John C. Calhoun College to be aware of that history.
5: And I think this is a perfect example of
6: actually the gift was from her to all the rest of us in terms of representing us,
5: standing up for what's right,
6: really being a leader. I really want to say how much respect I have for what she's been doing and also how proud I am that she's a Yale and that she is somebody standing up you know, and representing the very best of this university. I think it's important to say that. So structural racism, how do I talk about structural racism? It's ordinary people, yeah.
2: Ordinary middle class white people who don't live it. Yeah. They do live it. They do live it. They don't know
6: that they live it. And so the question is, when you look at how they know they live it because when you talk to them about it, they actually see it and it's part of their lives. And so I think the only way to talk about it you know, I live in San Francisco, California. And so for instance, there is a very big street in San Francisco, Geary Avenue, that was deliberately built intentionally to separate public housing,
5: predominantly
6: African-American people who came to work in the shipyards in World War II, to deliberately wow. cut them off. You look at, it's easy for me to talk in San Francisco. Why do we not have BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System? going down the overwhelmingly white peninsula or the overwhelmingly white Marin County, but we do go to the East Bay, the most diverse traditionally city in, in, in the Bay Area. The answer is racism. You can look at every part of this country and see in the basic physical being of of cities and neighborhoods Mm. what it is and you can see it in the school system There's, there's no way to miss this why do we pay for schools the way we pay for schools a serious racist underpinning. Everybody's kids know this. And so I don't find it hard to convince people about this. We saw it this summer with George Floyd and everybody in America saw it. We, you know, these videos are living proof, undeniable proof of something that's been going on for a really long time. We just didn't have cameras with video capability in <laughs> them. So I don't think this is hard to talk about. To me, I think everybody knows this. The question is, are they willing to admit it to themselves? And then I tried to say when I was talking earlier, it's racism, but it's also money. So this is also about people. And I think that's why one of the reasons I so respect and support
5: Congressman Jackson Lee's approach of
6: saying, Let's tell the truth. Let's get it out. It's the big tent. and So we're not determining exactly how to repair. We're just emphasizing the need to repair, and let's talk together about how to do that.
2: Thank you. Uh, stick around as long as you can, Tom. There's a question here from Molly Mitchell, who I think is a student at Yale. Uh, her research, she says, is an in institutional repentance practices. Could be a Divinity School student. After truth, Pablo, uh, Leslie, you might want to jump on this one. After truth-telling, what are necessary steps that organizations should engage in? And what published resources and experts would we direct her to in churches, nonprofits, and so on? But after truth-taking, what happens next? Pablo, you might want to. Yeah. So, part of
4: the point that I was making uh, before was that uh, if reparations is conceived simply as a monetary exchange, loses all of its uh, reparative uh, value. Mm. Uh, It may be an effective mechanism of compensation, but it doesn't do anything in order to repair social relations and social fabrics. We have to acknowledge countries that have tried to overcome massive human rights violations have used tools that individually are weak. Criminal prosecutions of mass human rights violators are few in number. Truth commissions, from a certain perspective, as important as they are, in isolation are just words reparation so programs in basis. isolation from uh, the others, is just money. I think that what is critical uh, is to think about the uh, linkages of the I different so of initiatives. The in Do, uh, for are I we giving people sufficient uh, reason to believe like that. that we are serious about I the I fact, have that, have
5: fact right? that
4: human rights we're violations really, took so place? Are, are we I giving people serious reasons to believe, uh, reasons uh, to believe that sure. now, They can trust institutions that in many ways either allowed or were responsible for the violation of uh, those rights. And therefore we need not just one remedy, but rather a coordinated set of uh, remedies. It has taken us centuries to get where we are. I think that it will take us many, many uh, measures and initiatives to get us out of the place where we are. And I want to emphasize one point uh, that uh, uh, all the other speakers have already mentioned, but I think it's absolutely crucial. I think that countries make a mistake when they think uh, that reparations is something that is done solely on behalf of victims. Reparations is done on behalf of society as a whole. At their best, what reparations can do is to restore trust between citizens and between citizens and the institutions of the state. And therefore, reparations in the US, for example, should not be thought as something that we are doing on behalf of the African-American population. Reparations is something that we ought to be doing on behalf of the notion of citizenship, on behalf of the idea that we are a nation ruled by law, but also in order to repair damage that racism does to whites. It's not just uh, uh, the African American population that suffers the intergenerational horrors of segregation. The white population suffers similar horrors. Baldwin was very good at taking an interest, not just on the effect of segregation on African-Americans, but on wondering what does this do to white people. And he came to the conclusion, it produces terror. And it says something horrible about us that we can live with the idea that African-American parents need to have the conversation with their children about how to confront encounters with public authorities. That is authorities that represent all of us and that we can live with that without demanding change immediately because what it says about us is that we can live with uh, that sort of structural violence to get back to the term that we were discussing before?
2: Oh thank you. I, I love I love the point about but trying to envision repair
5: as a new vision of citizenship, not just who gets paid and who doesn't. I mean, Leslie,
2: uh, go ahead.
3: I want to um, respond to that in a couple of ways. One is that through my work with universities, much of the forms of repair that people took initially were symbolic. And that only begins the journey, renaming buildings. Um, I would even say that a recommitment to um, admit more diversity in um, student bodies didn't really address the ways that these institutions are not just about the production of students, of graduates, but also of knowledge, that they are also the largest employers in their uh, communities. So there are multiple levels, just to give that one example, at which universities need to rethink what their mission is, and we should be demonstrating how to do that with an anti-racist understanding, but one that is also grounded in material realities. And I I mean, what does it cost to go to an institution like this? What does it cost to even apply? What, um, as we've already stated, how can wealthy institutions help institutions that are less, so that we all survive and thrive. Added to that, um, there's a question about um, uh, uh, the difference between, is there a difference, I would put it this way, between societal repair and the repair of people who are victimized by this ongoing history of racism. Both of these things can coexist. I don't think any of us are saying that there isn't a need for attention to individual repair, just as Representative he said very well. It's a big tent. But I think the, the reason that we are focusing as a panel as well on these broader societal structures and the need to repair or even re-envision them Is because, frankly, it's that classic give give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. But if we don't create a society that will allow people to live into the possibility of that material repair, to use it for their greater benefit, to think about the ways in which that um, encourages access to society in a broad, full way. We have had... Wealthy individuals, I can only mention on my mind today, is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm, mm. But Tulsa is only the worst example of two dozen or more black downtowns that were systematically destroyed. Black business acumen was systematically destroyed in the decades after Reconstruction. And that, of course, is just one example. So we can create, uh, you know, we can seed that again, but without creating a society that is willing to recognize that as a legitimate exercise of citizenship of black life. Then we could very well find ourselves repeating the same uh, uh, things that, that we have already experienced—the same terror, as as Pablo well put it. And I'm, you know, I, I really want, and it's for that reason that we have to think broadly. The, the addressing the material um, underpinning is critical. Now, you know, there have been discussions of universal basic income as one way that would not just for African Americans, but would go a long way. Um, Sandy Darity, a fabulous uh, economist who does a lot of studying of reparations, the baby bonds idea also, that everyone who's born has a certain amount of money, and that could certainly be pegged to a repair of previous harms. But I want to be clear that that alone is not enough. And uh, we have seen over and over again the ways in which that financial, even when created by black people themselves, has frankly been stolen from them. And so we have to do something bigger than that.
2: Yeah, and it can't be a, a, a vision of a zero-sum game you take money to give to, to her and all of that. Um, Tom, you went in on this. Go I ahead. I do. I
6: just want to say something before, because I do have to go. Sure. And I think this has been an incredible discussion, but before I leave, I want to say one thing, which is there was a dramatic wrong done to African-Americans in this country under the legal structure set up by this country, and the point of reparations is that it must be repaired. And that is the overwhelming moral point, I think, about this, this, uh, about this evening. And I hope that Representative Jackson Lee is absolutely correct, that repairing directly that historic illegality and inhumanity is going to be the next great civil rights the uh, movement and the great bill that she's sponsoring and that will redress a very specific wrong that was done to very specific people in a way that is absolutely unconscionable. I'm going to
1: raise my hand right now before Tom goes.
6: Go
1: Professor? Go ahead. I want to, just before Tom goes, first of all, I think he has written the op-ed that we are supposed to be writing. Uh, uh, But um, I want to build on what he said, and I want to just say thank you. I don't think I can uh, top his eloquence in this, but he has been um, a moving force, factually based, but emotionally driven uh, around H.R. 40, and it has been such an inspiration. We've been together. Uh, I don't think we first uh, attached the Yale concept. Uh, we got together first before we realized that we had uh, a kinship. Uh, and he has been uh, just by my side as we've tried to make these last couple of months. And I, and I do want to say that uh, this, he testified, I guess we didn't say that he actually was one of my witnesses in the Judiciary Committee hearing. And of course, he provided uh, an enormous challenge to my friends who were trying to find ways to be against it. But uh, I want you to know that the bill has never gone this far. So we're, let me make the record clear that this is legislation.
5: Uh,
1: this is H.R. 40 is legislation and that it's reading its languages, the commission to study reparations and develop reparation proposals, which means
5: that uh,
1: Tom's knowledge, for example, uh, his banking structure, these are all of the items that will be allowed to be presented to hearings. And yes, it is governmentally structured because it is under the auspices, not that my neighbor grandmother did not have slaves. Is on the auspices that the federal government sanctioned slavery and the various states sanctioned slavery by actual laws, slave codes, and otherwise. Even in spite of uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, we had segregation laws all into the 20th century that segregated America. And by the way, when FDR did his Social Security
5: for 20 years
1: plus, African Americans did not receive social security because we were dominantly in categories of jobs that they specifically excluded. That is a governmental action. So I ask people if your grandmother and great-grandmother were murdered, and you're here now in the 21st century, and the case was never solved,
5: are you telling me that you
1: would not want some inspired law enforcement officer or uh, some investigator to come and tell you I'm going to look into the Myrtle, the grandmother and great grandmother, and I'm going to find that uh, I'm going to find that culprit, that perpetrator. I don't think you'd refuse that. Well, that's what happened to Black people, Black Americans. Tom sees it. I hope you all see it. And when people respond, "Oh, that was a long time ago," do you know how hurting that is for us to hear? Because so many of us live with parents. Uh, grandparents, and maybe even today's children in the unequal educational system that are truly still impacted by these stark disparities. So, Tom, I think you got it right. We may be writing our message in in the open public. But, Professor, I just wanted to say that this is legislation, which is a big deal in the United States Congress, and we're trying to get it passed uh, and or handled by the President of the United States.
2: I can imagine new forums once you get that commission established. I want to ask a couple more questions here. We we have no less than 40 questions, uh, and a lot of them are kind of boiling down to this. Well, a lot of people are asking how exactly and what forms would reparations take, but Greg Dixon has sent in two or three questions, and one of his is other Americans have received, as he puts it, cash payments, and he may be referring there to the the victims of the Japanese internment. He may be referring to the uh, uh, 9-11 structure that paid victims' families based on their income and so on. Um, So he's wondering how how do members of this panel reflect on the fact
5: that since Americans
2: have already done this before in different forms, why not this one? What makes this issue so much harder, it appears, And Pablo, you might help us here, because uh, the Japanese internment is based on a a kind of direct payment,
5: crimes done against certain families.
2: The 9-11 thing was based on another kind of model, individualized victims and their families and so on. Um, Why is
5: it so much harder on this question? I think that it would be
4: naive not to think that racism plays a very big role, if not the crucial role, in the answer. So Of course, one can say a historical injustices, precisely because of the passage of time make the judicial uh, addressing of certain issues much harder than recent uh, violations. But we're not talking here about uh, a judicial approach to reparations. And therefore, as uh, Representative Jackson Lee correctly argues, uh, the question about the passage of time cannot be used as an argument against reparations. It is in fact an argument that should be used in order to highlight the urgency of finally addressing an issue that keeps the country divided in horrendously pernicious ways. And I want to insist in pernicious ways that affect negatively not just African Americans, but affect negatively the moral standing of uh, a community that resists again and again to confront an issue over which it was plainly responsible and continues to be plainly responsible. Indeed. Yeah. Well, um, there are many,
2: many more questions here. There's so many I can't possibly get to them all. I will say we have people on the event tonight from numerous HBCUs they're writing in to say thank you and so on. People have written from Spellman, from Morehouse, from Northern State and so on and so forth mostly saying thank you. I, I, but there are a lot of other questions. I guess I would just with a general wrap-up question ask
5: Leslie Powell,
2: Congresswoman to once again reflect if you would
5: on how hard
2: this question is. And by that, I mean the politics of it. I, 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 I hate to keep bringing that up, but Pablo, in your book uh, that I've read now, or at least most, much of it, you, you point to this in, in this country, in that country, in every country. They had to navigate a politics that often seemed impossible. And yet, in many cases, they managed it. Now, How? maybe you can give us an example of where even the German situation took years and there was resistance to it in Israel as well as in Germany Uh, and in America there's a lot of resistance to this especially the money aspect of this. How do we navigate the politics of this? So, I think that
4: first it is important to understand that because reparations involve the mobilization of public funds, it inevitably involves uh, politics. And as a consequence, it is very important to think about uh, political coalitions in support uh, of uh, the program. There are countries in which reparation programs have failed not for economic reasons, but for political reasons, that the right coalitions were not formed, and therefore uh, the programs failed. Reparations are traditionally given to parts of the population that are not especially popular, that are not always politically empowered, and therefore it requires special care, to think about the political coalition making in favor of it. A crucial element around that political coalition making has to do with the socialization of truth Mm -hmm. that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. The generalization of the consequences of the phenomena that we are trying to repair. And with helping people overcome the idea That this is something that is done only for the sake of the past, only for the sake of victims, only because of a debt. No, this is something that we do for the sake of the present and the future so that we can live with one another, so that we can trust our institutions, and so that we can look at each other in the eye as equal citizens, taking seriously the idea that the rights of all are equally important and that shift from reparations on behalf of a small disfavored group of victims to reparations as a mechanism to give force to the idea of citizenship and of equality and the rule of law has been fundamental where this has succeeded.
2: You know, Pablo, you're making me think, and then Leslie, I'd love to hear you weigh in on this. You're making me think that this will succeed, and Congresswoman, I wonder if you agree.
5: This will succeed when enough,
2: you never get 90% on anything, but when enough Americans begin to see this as equivalent to Social Security equivalent to this idea that America is an abolitionist country because we ended slavery. Now, we know that's a complicated story, but Barack Obama stood up and said the United States is an abolitionist country. Well, we all love to believe that. In other words, reparations may have to become part of the national mythology of who we are. You know, uh, we are a country that, that repairs its wrongs and its biggest wrong
5: was slavery. So, I mean,
2: I know that sounds, this may sound utopian and too idealistic, but maybe that's where this has to eventually get to.
5: But you only get there. As Pablo, you're saying, and Congresswoman,
2: you so well know,
5: by the nitty-gritty,
2: devilish work of coalition building with people who disagree with
3: you.
5: Leslie, go ahead. I didn't mean
2: to make
3: One that thing, the truth-telling is central to this. I think um, we cannot underestimate the degree to which this nation as a whole does not understand the centrality of slavery in the Americas broadly compared to its success. And I'm not just talking 1776 for it. I'm not even talking 1619. I'm talking 1490 somebody that without bringing slave labor here and using it for four plus four and a half, Brazil ends in 1877. You know, we, we have
5: to think differently
3: about the use of that labor, what it meant to people of African descent,
5: and how, the, and that
3: none of the, what we have would be possible without it. Uprooting this idea that um, people of African descent are somehow illegitimately here, but it's our fault that we're illegitimately here. That untruth has to be done away with. The idea that black people don't work, have not worked on behalf of the nation, that has to be done away with. The idea that somehow we don't have a legitimate claim to the rights of the nation, we are still struggling with that. Until there's a full accounting of the role of African Americans, enslaved and free, in the success of this nation. I don't think we're going to get very far. So that is, for me, me. a critical part of the repair. Of course, I'm an historian, I would say that. But when I hear people say, slavery had nothing to do with me, slavery had nothing to do with the nation, this was a nation founded in freedom. This was a nation founded in slavery and freedom. It would not exist without like, I, maybe there's an alternative universe where that happened. we don't live in that universe so when we can um, claim uh, I, I say all the time we're happy to claim wealth if we inherit it we're not happy to uh, inherit the wrongs that happened. if we can look to the past and say thank you founding we should also be able to look to the past and say whoa, slavery is part of our past too and until we really come to terms with that this whole idea is a hard sell because people don't want to believe that black people sacrifice for anything in this country. And, well, and, and that uh, prevents us from moving forward. And it's been told over and over again. It has been used to justify violence and and that black people don't deserve anything. So that has to be a critical part. And that's where I really uh, appreciate how, how is you know, through his study of how these Moments have worked in other societies. I think that's really critical. That truth telling, and it is indeed truth telling that has to happen.
5: Well,
2: well said. In fact, the point isn't it? Is that slavery was no aberration. Slavery was at the heart of. the... Remember the film we worked on with Jim Horton? It was,
5: uh, slavery
2: in the making of America. That multi-part. It was about making of the economy, about making of the political system, about making the expansion. And it's not, it's not a way of just saying, oh, look how evil America is. It's just the reality of what the labor system was. The largest asset in the United States at the time of the Civil War was $3.5 billion of slaves, the largest single asset in the entire economy. So it helped make the country, to say the least. So to to repair a harm You've got to know that first. Right? Oh. <laughs> um, Congressman Jackson Lee, I am more than happy to give you the last word. Well, let me say that I want to import each
1: and every one of you down here to Washington, D.C., package you and let you walk around and espouse truth, if you will, uh, because I've just listened to a bounty of truth that is very difficult sometimes to penetrate the web of um, political uh shenanigans but I, but i hold in my hand uh, many of you may have heard of barbara jordan she's my predecessor and mentor and endorsed me and she said always keep one with you that is the constitution i think it tracks what pablo has said uh though he speaks internationally it tracks uh leslie it, it tracks uh, you um uh, david and um It it opens, of course, with we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. I use that all the time. I won't read it all, but I always emphasize a more perfect union. But in spite of that original language,
5: uh, blacks slaves
1: were less than a person.
5: Um,
1: Just think of a commission for once and for all. We didn't do those findings for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We didn't do those findings for the 1965 Voting Rights Act. We had a Civil Rights Act in 1957, by the way. We also had one uh, in the late 1800s. But we haven't had them much. Now, that's interesting. In our long history, we haven't had, you know, five, six, seven, eight civil rights laws. So you get the commission and you do what you have just said you calculate the actual wealth, uh, the actual income that was generated by the holding of slaves, the bartering of slaves, we frankly created the wealth of the South by way and then the wealth of the nation. We created the Wall Street banks because they were holding the monies of the landed Southerners and, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, which should answer people's really sometimes uh, disrespectful comments of uh, why should it fall to me or um, they've already been taken care of and as uh, our good friend, Senator McConnell, indicated the election of President Barack Obama should have been enough for you folks. Uh, And I'm glad that the former president has now talked about the issue of reparations because of the wealth gap. But what I would say is... You never stop engaging. Uh, this bill is a tutorial. It's a teaching tool because it will allow uh, a national. Form, yeah, a national form of commission hearings that will actually be able to document. historians will appear before. It if it goes as we have intended it, um, economists to be able to document. and all those who are calculating payments, they will not be excluded. I don't want anyone to think on this session that I ignore compensation. This bill was written one year after the uh, Civil Liberties Bill, which is the 1988 reparations bill for Japanese Americans. Our dear friends who are strong supporters of this, one of our witnesses that was listed is former Secretary uh, Mineta, uh, who uh, had a factual or real-life experience. So we're not excluding that, but it will point to the facts. That this nation's bounty, uh, and how we were to become the wealthiest nation in the world, and still are, that we've got a lot of folk knocking at the door because we had this unpaid labor. Even the forty acres and a mule that General Sherman attempted to do only along the eastern seacoast um, was again imploded; did not happen. And again, you know, we were tossed to the side, meaning all these freed slaves, we were a distraction. We were uh, an afterthought, and we were not important in America's psyche. It was the union, uh, and I don't say that lightly, but I'm talking about after Lincoln's death. It was all about the South. We We need to make sure we make them happy, and we were discarded. And I leave on this note. Just imagine a people who had been in bondage for over 200 years who did not and had no connection to their original landed land, their original homeland. They were born, lived, and died. There were great grandmothers who were in slavery. And so their dependence was born, inbred. In, in they were free. Some miraculous circumstances happened with a few governors, as I said, senators, and congresspeople, and uh, folks had a little land, I shouldn't say a little land, there are some magnificent things that happened, but the bulk of the $4 million sort of continue to just kind of move around, uh, and as we use in the community, catch as catch can. And so I would just ask the question, that is not way back then. It is really in our current psyche. They were never compensated. And they have come to now the 21st century, and we can document uh, the disparities and the inequity that this community now faces, and it's never been addressed. H.R. 40 is the legislative uh, anchor uh, to do as we did for our friends, the Japanese, albeit a smaller uh, community, albeit a earlier time or later time, but I think it is why we can't wait. Now is the time for H.R.
2: 40. Uh, well, but thank I'm you, Congresswoman that Jackson that's Lee. It's been that's a very that's special that's thing that's to have that's you that's on that's this. It's An honor to all of us. Uh, and I just want to say I, I, I'm happy to come down and help you out anytime. I'm sure Leslie and Pablo are too. I just want to go with you when you meet with Kevin McCarthy <laughs> <and> Douglas <laughs> I'm happy to help you on that one. I wrote an edit. I wrote an op-ed about. McCarthy and his portrait the Oh I'm gonna look it up. Well he he, he may not Did want me there, but uh-huh. I'd love to go with you, so you let me know I'm there.
5: Uh, I wanna to apologize to
2: all of the good people in the Q and A section with questions we didn't quite get to. Um uh, and I wanna thank everyone out there who joined us tonight, all three hundred of you or more. Um
5: and uh special thanks.
2: Pablo, to you, and That's Leslie, to you. I bad. forgot to mention yeah, that Leslie yeah. is writing a major yeah. book on her hometown of New Orleans and her family oh. uh, and the impact of Katrina. That is a book to be mm. looking for. Yeah. Uh, and, and Pablo continues his great work on, on this, this story of reparations in the post-World War II world. I have a funny feeling we may be back doing this in a year or so. Um, when We have a lot more to, to, to report about yale's own story um and who knows whenever hr 40 passes i hope we're all still around and can uh, can come to the party <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all of you and congresswoman uh, enjoy the rest of your evening thanks thank you for giving up your evening uh, at your office and uh thanks to everybody um uh this has been a, a panel uh, sponsored by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery and Abolition here at Yale. And if anybody out there in Yale land or any other land wants to help us, uh, we are in need of uh, continuing to raise funds for the future of the GLC. And at the bottom of this uh, slide, you can see a link to go to to help us out in our legacy fund. Thank you all for coming tonight and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. You bet. Take care, everybody.